Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at the book of Jonah and, and just show us what you would want us to see from this story of this prophet who was disobedient and forced into being obedient. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Book of Jonah. Uh, one of the things about Jonah is we don't know who wrote it, which is very unusual. Uh, most people believe that it was made by, a lot of people do believe it was written by Jonah. If not by Jonah, by somebody who knew his, the details of his story really well. The time frame of this is not quite known, but the period that it's set in is when Nineveh was a strong nation. And therefore it is basically the same time that we're studying in 2 Kings of Hezekiah. And one, one, one or king either direction, uh, because Nineveh is strong and in power and Jonah's called to them. They're an enemy of Israel, and he's called to them, and he doesn't want to go to them because they're the enemy. He wants them destroyed. He's not happy when God tells him to go to Nineveh, and Nineveh's a power, and when they bow to God's desire here, they get about 140 years of extra time. So we're actually a period before, you know, a little bit before uh, Hezekiah's period of time. So lots, lots of things going on in that. Uh, there's lots of details in this, in this book. The, many people say it was around the 8th century B.C., which would put it right in that, that yeah. ballpark. So the time frame is that he lives around, roughly the same time Isaiah's preaching, uh, because he's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, that, he lived, that Jonah's mentioned that he lives in Gath-Hippler, uh, and that is a town just north of Na where Nazareth is. So he's from the northern part of Israel. So he's in the side that is going to be attacked by Assyria first. So he really is not liking Assyria, which is where Nineveh is, uh, that he's going to be preaching against or, or to, uh, or God is calling him to. And he doesn't like, you know, he, he doesn't like the idea of going to his enemies. They were actively trying to conquer them. And so he was like, he didn't want to go there. It is a book that has lots of detail about his life, so a lot of people do believe it was written by Jonah, but we're, we're not quite sure who wrote it. It's definitely about Jonah. The word, the, the name Jonah means dove. Kind of an interesting name for a man. <laughs> One of the things about this book is it's been criticized by critics because of the being swallowed by a, a great fish and spit back up and all of those things and the storm and, and the storm dying as soon as he was thrown in the water. And so there have been... It's been ridiculed and unbelieved as legend or myth. Uh, the Jews have always believed that it was true up until recent, recent years. They believed that it was a true story. Jesus said it was a true story because in Matthew 12, 39 through 41, he quoted it as a true, real event. And if Jesus believes it, that's good enough for me. Uh, besides the fact that it's in the Bible, so I'm going to believe it. Uh, in spite of how strange it might seem. Uh, and it is kind of hard to believe that a man gets swallowed by a fish. Is it Matthew 12, 39? Matthew 12, 39-41, as Jesus re recording that, that, it, that, he's, that it's true. So we have lots of different things going on in this uh, book. Basically, the summary is about four points, and it's all the four chapters. God calls the prophet to do something he doesn't want to do. He runs away. He gets cast into the sea, swallowed by a fish, and has a prayer. We have an entire chapter that's a prayer of Jonah. He is, decides to repent while he's in the fish. 
He is spit out and he obeys God and serves God and then he gets mad at God. And that's the summary of the book. It's, uh, there's lots of, inf- lots of things in here, but you know, we've all know this story. It's one that we know the story real well. We could read the entire story in one time, but we're going to dig down into it and, and f- pull out the details of what we're looking at. Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go from there to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. All right, so we're going to start out with this. God comes to Jonah, and he gives Jonah a very simple statement. Go to Nineveh. And in case he didn't know what Nineveh to go to, he says that great city, that, that uh, marvelous city, a big city. And again, remember, at this time, Assyria is a rising star. It is starting to form its kingdom. It's a little bit before its peak. And, but they're become, they're, God is saying, I know they're evil. I know all that they are doing. And you know, this is kind of, a, we, we look at this, and many people think, well, God only cares about his people. You know, but we see all through the scriptures, he was taking note of other nations. He used them to punish his people, but he also punished them. Assyria is going to be punished because they were too harsh on Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, and God is going to say, nope, you were you are, you are too hard on your discipline of my people. Now I'm going to take you out. And he sends Babylon to take and conquer them. But even before that, God is saying their wickedness has come up before me. We, we have various other words, the Tower of Babel, where man was trying to do things his way, and God confused the languages and sp- spread the people around the world. Uh, the flood of Noah, the entire world was so evil, God judged them. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, an area that was so wicked that God said, I'm going to destroy. And all through history, God has stepped down and said, you may not be my people, you may be, but you're disobeying and you're so wicked that I'm going to judge. Nineveh, we don't know what their wickedness is. There's no idea what their wickedness is. It could be cruelty, it could be sexual, just like many of the other things that cause God to, God's great judgment. But we don't know. God is saying, your wickedness, their wickedness has come up before me. And we don't know what that wicked was. And it says, but... In verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is. Most people believe that it was in Spain or even in uh, what is now Great Britain. Uh, some people believe it's some of the islands in there. I do believe it's about as, the idea was that it was as far west as you could go. Uh, he goes, God, you want me to go north, northwest? I'm going to go way west. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he, it says that he tried to leave the presence of the Lord. Now, he's a prophet. He can't do that. He knows that. He's a prophet and knows that he can't leave the presence of the Lord. And yet, he's going out to do things his way and say, I'm going to go do it my way and I'm going to, God, I'm going to, I'm going to go away from you and not obey. Now, one of the problems is if we decide to not obey God, God pursues us. <laughs> Over and over again, if we're his child and we try to go the wrong way, God pursues. And he makes life miserable until we 
obey. He is going to make Jonah's life pretty miserable uh, until he obeys. <laughs> and, you know, this is kind of an interesting... So he, he leaves from where he's at, probably up in the Nazareth, you know, where, where his hometown is. He heads to Joppa. And Joppa is a coastal, coastal city uh, on the Mediterranean. And he decides, well, uh, God, you want me to go up north, north, north of here, north and west. I'm going to go due, due west, and I'm going to keep going west. <laughs> you know, he was the original person that said, go west, young man, go west. <laughs> Uh, except that God did not want him to go, <laughs> go west. <laughs> He's going, I want you to go north, <laughs> northwest. Uh, and so he decides, he gets to Joppa, and he pays the money to go on a ship uh, and starts going to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So this has been the, the theme. He knows what he's supposed to do. And, you know, one of the things that I have found in my lifetime, there's only been a couple of times when I've done something that I know God didn't want me to do, and it's miserable, and it's hard, and you know you're not doing right in the first place, and Jonah's in that ballpark. He knows that he's not doing what's right. But again, Nineveh, the Assyrians, are the enemy of the northern kingdom right now. So he's being told, go preach to the enemy. Go convert them. And he already knows this. He's going to tell us at the end of the book, he goes, his accusation of God, God, I knew you'd forgive them if they re repented, that were, therefore I didn't want to go. You know, he didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to destroy Nineveh because that would destroy the enemy of Israel. So from a human perspective, he was doing everything that was right. From a national perspective, he was doing what was right. He was just disobeying God. But from a human point of view, he was doing the best thing he could do. Let me, let me run away and let God destroy that, destroy that city and, and they, they won't be attacking us anymore. So again, by walking by his own thoughts, he was doing the best thing. He was protecting his, he was protecting his nation. Uh, I'm going to protect my nation. God, I know that you, want them, that you want them to get a message, but I don't care. I, I'm going to be following my nation more than I care about, care about what you want. Very dangerous place to be, to disobey God. And so he's on this ship in verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares from, that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down to the sides of the ship and he lay down and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said, What mean you, O sleeper? Arise, call on your God, so, that, so it be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And then they said to everyone and to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, and that we may know whose cause this evil is come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. All right, so we're going to stop there. Jonah gets on this boat. And you know, what amazes me about this statement is, he, even though he's being disobedient to God, has enough peace to sleep in the middle of a storm. Okay, this boat is being bounced around and twisted and turned, and he's sleeping. I find that just an amazing thing. 
Yeah, and rocking him to sleep. <laughs> but, but usually when you're disobedient to God, you're not at peace. He seems to be perfectly okay with this. And I think it's because he's trusting to go, well, God, I'm, I'm just waiting for you to destroy that nation. I'm looking forward to it, so I'm just going to go to sleep. And he gets on, and this boat is hit by a great wind, it says, and a tumultuous tumult. In other words, I would almost say that they hit a hurricane, some kind of a nor'easter. God had unleashed everything against them. And so their answer was, as most people did back in those days, and they were afraid the ship was going to be torn, torn apart. It was, it was heavily loaded with cargo. It floated deep. So what ended up happening when you ran into a storm back in those days? You started unloading the boat and getting enough air and, and lightness in it so maybe it would float to the top of the waves and not be bashed so much. Uh, many times it didn't work, but that was their answer. Throw everything overboard. Lighten, lighten up the boat. So these sailors are doing everything they can to keep that boat, keep that boat floating. And they're looking at it. They're, they're casting everything out. And that's when it says that Jonah was down in the, down in the, belly, of the belly of it sleeping. You know, he was in his cabin, on his, on his bunk, or in his, in his hammock, or whatever, and sleeping during the middle of a storm. Now, in one sense, that kind of reminds me of Jesus sleeping on the boat when, the, yeah. when they're crossing the uh, Galilee and the disciples are, are panicking. And Jesus said, well, I told you we're going to the other side. And, you know, and he just said, you know, peace be still. Yeah. Now, the only thing is, Jonah's not there because he's at peace with God. He's just kind of in a, you know, he is at peace, but he's not with God. And I don't understand his peace because I know when I've been disobedient to God, I do not have peace in my life. And yet Jonah, in the middle of a storm, is sleeping. And it just it's ama it amazes me. It really does. And I don't know, maybe it doesn't amaze everybody. It really amazes me that he's sleeping peacefully in the middle of a storm, running away from God. Maybe he thinks he's uh, forgiven God. Um, he's, he may have confidence that God's going to forgive him. Well, God, you know, yeah, you're going to destroy them, and I'm going to be happy, but you're going to forgive me eventually. I'll just, when I get back to Jerusalem, when I get back there, I'll, get, I'll offer a sacrifice, and, and you'll forgive me. Kind of like many Christians. It doesn't matter what I do, because God's going to forgive me, and it doesn't matter what I do to my testimony or anything, God's going to forgive me. And, and I hate that attitude, and so does the lost world. The lost world wants to see that we are living examples of what it means to walk with God. And here Jonah is sleeping. And all these men are running around. They're praying to their gods, it says. They're, they're crying every man to his god. Because none of them know which god it is that's causing the problem. All right? Uh, and you've got to remember, they're polytheistic. You know, they don't know which god it is that's stirring up the waters. But they're all praying to their various gods. And whatever, whoever was a god of the, the god of the seas would be praying very hard because their, their god was the one stirring things up, most likely. And all of this is going on. They're working hard. They're praying. They're going, you know, to the multiple gods. <laughs> you know, what's going on? And then in verse 6 it says, the shipmaster, which could have been actually translated captain. The captain of the ship come, come, came down and he goes... Why are you sleeping? <laughs> what means this that you're sleeping? You know, aren't you aware of what's going on? And, and maybe he wasn't. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't a sailor at all, and he didn't realize that this was abnormal. 
Uh, maybe he's hoping that God will kill him because he didn't want to go to Nineveh. You know, and it's kind of interesting, how many times do we see in the Bible that somebody almost gets happy at the, dis- at the destruction of somebody else because they didn't have to have, have it happen? Hezekiah, we're going to see in 2 Kings, he complains to God, God gives him, grants him, and he says that you're going to regret this, and he goes, and he brings his son, and by the time he dies, he goes, well, there's judgment upon you, but it's not going to be in your time. And he goes, okay, good, fine, no matter. <laughs> it, it, you know, it'll be in my son's time, who cares? <laughs> and he's not the only king that had made that comment. Okay, God, you're going to judge my family, okay, as long as it's not me. That, to me, is such a callous idea. But I kind of think that Jonah's in that ballpark. You know, it's like, as long as I die or something, and God destroys Nineveh, who cares? <laughs> and he, he really is an indicative person of somebody with no love at all for these, for these Ninevites. He has no care that they're going to be destroyed. And we're going to see that all through the book. You know, and God's going to try to show him by the end, don't you care? God's going to say there's 120,000 people that live in Nineveh. And God says they don't know their right hand from their left hand. You know, they're, they're totally ignorant of what they're doing and, and what, they're, what they're causing. And you did not have pity on them. And it is easy to not love our enemies. It's human nature not to love our enemies. That's why when Jesus said that we're to love our enemies as ourselves, do good to those who hate and despitefully use you, that was quite a statement that he's saying. But it is the love that God has for us. Before we got saved, we were all the enemy of God deserving what Nineveh was, was facing. And I'm glad that there are pastors and, and evangelists that go out and, and share the gospel with people. And Jonah is going to be forced to do this. And he's sleeping, and the captain comes down and goes, why are you sleeping? Call on your God. Now, think about this. Jonah's running away from God. And here's the captain of the ship saying, pray to God. And I can almost picture Jonah going, uh, Captain, you don't understand. I'm running away from God. I can't, I can't be calling on this God. You know? uh, and on top of that, he's pretty sure that it's him that's the cause of all this, as he's going to tell him later on. Okay, um, So he's being told, call on your God so that, you, that your God may think on us and that we perish not. Okay, he found somebody who's not talking to their God. Maybe this is the one. Maybe he follows the God that is going to be the one that's going to be the answer. The captain doesn't know this for sure, but here's somebody who's not praying. Somebody who's not paying attention to the boat sinking. Uh, he is a passenger. And there's no, what else is he going to do? He's, he's not going to be out on the deck trying to throw things overboard because he's not, he's not part of the crew. Um, and then... They decide to cast lots. Now, casting lots happened a lot in the Old Testament. I'm not sure that that's the best way to make decisions, but God honored it in many cases. Uh, they would put everybody's name in a hat and draw it out or somehow, somehow pass cards out. It's some kind of random chance. We don't know exactly what it is, but you know, um, when Joshua went into the Promised Land and they went to the Battle of Achan and lost, uh, they, because uh, Achan, uh, Battle of Ai and Achan had stolen items from Jericho, they cast lots. And each time they would cast lots, one of the tribes was check- taken and then one of the families was taken. 
And then the individuals of the family get down to Achan and said, okay, Achan, what did you do? God has used the lots a lot of times for divining truth. So here they put everybody's name in a hat or something, draw it out, and they're going, okay, uh, Jonah, it's yours. Uh, what did you do? The, the, the lot fell on Jonah. And we don't know exactly what casting lots was. It's some form of randomization. You know, maybe they put people in two groups, and if it was in, you know, roll the die, and if it was even, they took the even group or the odd, and then they kept, kept bringing it down until they get down to one person. And the belief in that was that God, the God would control the randomness of the, of the event and that the event would come down to the person who was to be questioned or, or punished. And in many cases, we see that it, was, that it worked. Uh, I'm not sure that it works every time, but <laughs> it, it was something that God used at various times. At least the people believed. Now, we also see a case of lots being cast when Judah, uh, when when uh, Judas kills himself and the apostle and the disciples said, well, we need 12 people. Jesus picked 12 people. We need 12 people. They picked Matthias and uh, I can't remember the other guy. Matthias was the one that was picked. And they, and they go, God, uh, we've got two guys here. You, we're going to cast lots and you pick which one you want. The only problem was they didn't have the right ones in the lot. So they got, they got an answer. It just wasn't the right answer. Because God had said, I pick Saul, <laughs> who was not on their, on their radar at all, because Saul is the one that was trying to kill him. <laughs> but they, because they were casting lots with one of two people, and God says, well, I didn't, I didn't pick him. <laughs> He's not the one that I'm picking, and Paul is going to become an apostle at, later, at, at a later time. And we never do hear about Matthias after that. Uh, even though the disciples said, okay, he's, he's, he's the one we pick. You know, we as human beings pick him. God, we pick, the, we pick the two best choices. Which of the two best choices do you want? And we tend to do that a lot with God. God, here, here, are, here are my worldly wisdom choices. <laughs> Which one do you want? And oftentimes God will say, well, I didn't pick any of those. <laughs> I did not pick any of those choices. All right. So after the lot happened in verse 8, then said they unto him, tell us, we pray you, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what, are your, and what people are you? And he said, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of, of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said unto them, to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. And then, he said, and then they said unto him, What shall we do unto you that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea was wrought and was tumultuous. And he said unto them, Take me and cast me forth into the sea, and so shall the sea be calm before you. For I know that it is for my sake that this great tempest upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it into land, but could not, for the sea wrought the sea wrought and was tumultuous against them. Therefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not his innocent blood uh, upon us. Innocent blood for you, O Lord, has done it as pleased you. So they took Jonah, cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. 
Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right. So they come to Jonah. They cast the lots. It fell on him. So they have lots of questions for him. All right. And let's look at some of their questions as they go. Tell us, we pray, for whose cause is this evil upon us? Okay. They're still not ready to accuse him, even though the lot fell on him. But... He should have an answer at this point. Right? The lot fell on you, Jonah. You know something. Start, start talking. <laughs> start talking about what's going on. And we're going to find out that obviously he told them that he was running from the presence of God. I, I'm leaving my God behind. Now, for a polytheistic person, this is a possibility. You can leave your God behind because you have the God of your land, the God of your city, the God of your field. So if you go far enough from your from whatever that God is, you can leave your God behind. Jonah knows that he can't leave the God of the universe behind. They don't, know. they don't understand this. So they don't really understand, you know, even if he told them he was leaving the presence of his God, they don't know how powerful his God is. Then he goes, uh, what is your occupation? Now, can you imagine this? What's your occupation? He gets to tell them, I'm a prophet of the God I'm running away from. <laughs> Uh, how would you like to have that as your testimony into, to these poor guys? You know, uh, you know well, I'm a prophet. <laughs> uh, well, who are you a prophet for? Well, the God that I'm running away from. <laughs> uh, not a very good testimony uh, to, to be able to put out in front of them. And then they, and where do you come from? And he's going to tell them Israel. You know, I come from Israel, and I'm, and I'm a Hebrew. Okay, the Hebrews were well known for their worshiping of one God, right? And we've, we've said this before, and I, I reiterate it. All Jews are Hebrews, but not all Hebrews are Jews because Hebrews come from Eber, and Eber is the, the father of many of the uh, basically uh, Middle Easterners on into India and, and, and uh, China. He's the father of those nations. And most of those nations until recent years were monotheistic believers in, in the one God of the, that created the universe and, and, and all of that. So Hebrews believed in one God. They were very opposed to all the other, other ones. So many people hated the Hebrews because even before Abraham and, and the Jewish people, the Hebrew people taught that there was one God and that you, if you worship these many gods, you were not following God. And so they didn't have the full understanding that the Jews had of God, but they understood one God. They understood the creator. They understood the sacrificial system of, of, of uh, blood being sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin because they traced their roots all the way back to Adam and Eve very clearly. And so they are one, one God followers. And... Uh, so they recognize, and that's going to set him against them because he's a Hebrew. And as we said, his verse he says is, I'm a Hebrew. You know, I, I'm following the one God. And he could have been after them. He goes, you guys have been praying to all your gods, all your false gods, but I worship the God. And that was what set the Hebrews, people hated the Hebrews because that whole idea that we worship the God. The one and only God that's out there, we worship him. And they have multiple gods. And even if they were only worshiping one god, it was just as bad in those days to say that you were following the one and only God. 
Same thing as what we get when we say we're, there's one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And people go, well, that's so narrow. How can you be so bigoted and, and narrow? Well, Jesus said it. And he's been saying it all through history through the, the, I, the preaching of one God. So as soon as he says he's a Hebrew, that's going to cause some problems. And then he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth that made the sea and the dry land. All right. So here he is. Number one, he says, I fear, which is kind of interesting. He's running from the God he fears. And then he goes, and my God is the God of the heavens. All of that you see in the heavens, you, you're worshiping the one star and the planets and the, and the things. He goes, I worship the God that created the heavens and who created the sea that's been tumultuous and who created the dry land. So in their minds, they've got a problem here. You know, they understand that you could, you could leave your God behind. He says that he's trying to leave his God behind that created the heavens, the sea, and the land. They are in a panic. You know, if you've got a God that's that powerful, how can you leave him? You know, they were able to understand you could leave the presence of your God. He's, he's the God of your house. He's the God of your field. He's the God of your city, the God of your nation, and you're leaving him behind. But he comes out and says, uh, by the way, my God <laughs> is the God that created everything. He's God of everything. And, you know, you can put yourself in their place. They're looking at him like, how can you leave the presence of a God that created everything? You know, number one, they're having trouble with that idea in the first place. But even at that, they're going to look at him in just a logical sense. Okay, we could understand how you could leave the God of Israel. You, you've left Israel. You, you've left the country. You're now at sea. We can understand how you could leave him behind. But how could you leave the God who created everything? Who is the Lord of the, of the sea and the Lord of the, of, the, of the land? And this is why it's hard to even understand that, that Jonah was willing to try to leave the presence of God. Uh, and tell everybody that's what he's doing. <laughs> I'm leaving the presence of the God that created everything and is everywhere. Uh, but you know, having said that, how many times do we live in a way that basically says God's not everywhere? You know, we believe that he is omnipresent, and yet we will say, well, if so-and-so was watching me, I'd never do something. You know, uh, might be if mom was watching me, you know, if dad was watching me, if, if my best friend knew what I was doing, I would never do this. And yet we will say that God is everywhere and he's our friend and he's our Lord and he's our master and we will do things that we wouldn't, wouldn't do in front of people. Uh, uh, we all do what Jonah's done at some point in our life. He's just being very bold and <laughs> bold about it. And it says they were afraid. Yeah, they were afraid. Here's a person who believes in a God that controls everything and he's running away from him and saying that it's my fault. The storm is my fault. Uh, what do you do with the guy? And that's what they're going to have to make a decision. They were, and in verse 10 it says, they were exceedingly afraid and asked him, what have you done? Uh, for they knew that he was running from the presence of the Lord because he had told him. He goes, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? You know, they're trying to make sense out of this. Here's a man who has actually talked to God has direction from God, and he's running away from him. All these other guys are like, uh, we don't talk to our God. You know, our gods have not talked to us. 
we prayed to them a lot and they don't, they're not answering. You have a God that's talked to you and you're running away from him and you say he's the God of the, God of the world. And you're trying to run away from his presence. And so they're asking, okay, what do you, what do you think we should do, Mr. Prophet, <laughs> who's causing us this prof- all, all these problems? And, you know, he very interestingly said, uh, let me see, verse 11. Then said they unto him, what should we do that the city become? For the sea is wrought and tumultuous. So they're going, all right, Mr. Prophet, you tell us what to do. We, our ship is being ripped to shreds. It's basically your fault. How do we appease your God? Um, and his answer is kind of interesting. He says, take me up, throw me in the sea, and the sea shall be calm. For, uh, for I know that for my sake this great temp- uh, tempest upon you. Now, I don't know if this was God speaking through Jonah at this point, or Jonah just saying, well, I want to die anyway, and you know, I want Nineveh, you know, if I die, Nineveh gets destroyed, so just cast me into the sea. I think Might have been, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, if he was really talking, he goes, well, I'm going to repent, God's going to, and if I repent, this storm will disappear as well. Uh, and I don't know. I'm not going to put it either direction. God may have said that, yes, if you throw me in the sea, I'm going to, to repent. But I think that, I personally think that Jonah was just like, hey, I don't want to go to Nineveh anyway, so if God kills me, Nineveh gets destroyed, and my, my life is nothing to, in comparison of saving my, my nation, so just throw me into the sea. And he knows that, you know, he's pretty sure that if, he, they, throw him, if they kill him, God will, God's anger will relent and, and, and release on them. And so I don't know. I'm not going to say that God didn't talk to him, but I have a feeling that he's trying to be... Uh, patriotic. I'm going to give him the idea that he's being patriotic for his country. Just kill me. God will, God will release it because I'll be dead and, and, and Nineveh will be dead and my life is a small price to pay for Nineveh being destroyed. Uh, and I don't know that that's what it is, but I just I look at the tenor of this book. Uh, the tenor of this book is not that, that Jonah is a great, great speaker or a great desire to go do it. Even when we get to his message, his message is I'll repent for you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. And I don't think there was a bit of love in that message. <laughs> I'm, I, I would say, I'm going, his word for repent might have been, repent, you're going to be destroyed in 15, 40 days. You know, his repent was probably very, very quiet <laughs> and screaming out, you're going to be destroyed. Uh, because he wanted them destroyed. He did not want them repenting. So I almost think that he was saying, just cast me in the sea, God will, God will, God will relent. I'll be dead, Nineveh will be destroyed, everything will be okay. Uh, and then it says in verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring, this, bring, the, bring it to land, but they could not, for the sea rot and was tumultuous against them. This idea of throwing a man overboard was something that they just could not bring themselves to do. It's like, uh, no, we're not going to try to kill somebody to save our lives, you know. Well, I think there was that possibility. You know, this guy's saying that everything's going to go, but, but just the idea. That there's not many people who can go out and purposely kill somebody, and these are sailors. They're not. They're not fighters. They're not warriors. They would be able to fight off of, of pirates or something coming after them, but they're not just going to go and cold-bloodedly kill somebody. 
they're not pirates. They're not going to make him walk the plank. <laughs> you know, they're, you know, to them, this idea, he said to throw him overboard. We throw him out in this sea. He's going to die. And, they, and on one side, they're probably not going to believe that the storm's going to stop. Okay? We throw him overboard. He dies. We still die. And their God may be, and his God may be angry at us for throwing him overboard. All right? Uh, so there's a lot of, so they're sitting there trying to row this boat, trying to get out of the storm. And finally, they find out that they can't. God has put a storm in against them that there is no getting out of. Uh, and when they talk about tumultuous, it's almost like they're in this great big bowl and everything's every direction. It's not a wind that they could just sail ahead. A lot of times in a, in a hurricane or a typhoon, you just stay, stay with the wind and you go with with everything, and it's rough, but you can ride out the storm. And this one apparently wasn't one that they could ride out. It was beating them on all sides and making life miserable. And they're looking at the ship, and it seems to be coming apart at the seams. And they're worried. These are, and these are guys that aren't going to worry uh, unneeded. These are sailor, sail, sa sailors. <laughs> they know when they're looking at their boat that it's having trouble. Just when Jesus in the, in the Sea of Galilee, when the ship was threatening to sink, the people that were talking to him were fishermen. They knew boats. They knew that they were sinking when they went to wake Jesus up. And he says, oh, what's your problem? They were walking by, by sight and not by faith. Jesus said, we're going to the other side. And they look at the ship and it's having trouble. And they're going, Jesus, we're going we're gonna to die. These men knew that they were in trouble. This wasn't an idea that we might be in trouble. It wasn't an idea that uh, we're having, all, you know, we might have a hard time. They knew their boat was in danger of sinking. And they tried hard. And then finally, in verse 14, it says, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord. They're crying to God. Now, they may not really know God, but they go, This man says he follows this God. He said to throw him overboard. And so they're going to decide to obey the word of the prophet. And it says, we beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you. So they're repeating this because they wanted to make sure that they're being heard by this God. Uh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they're praying to the God that they don't know and saying, basically saying, God, uh, he said to throw him overboard. Please don't be mad at us. You know, don't hate us for doing what he told us to do. Um, you know, we're going to sacrifice his life because he told us to. And sacrificing a life was not too uncommon with idols. Idols oftentimes took lives, not usually adults. You usually offered your children. Uh, so it wasn't too abnormal for them, but they also understood that this is kind of a strange, strange request. And they're praying, God, please don't judge us. Now, I don't know if they knew a little bit about the Hebrew God, that the Hebrew God did not take human sacrifices, because that could be true as well. And they're going to go, well, this guy just said to make a human sacrifice to their God. And we don't understand this, because that's not his God. That's not the God of the Hebrews. The Hebrew God does not take human sacrifices. We don't know exactly why this is really hard on them. Um, but they decide to be obedient to him. And verse 15, so they took Jonah, 
cast him forth in the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. And this is kind of an amazing thing. They're in the middle of a huge storm. And it stops. And they throw him overboard, and the storm stops. And I think it was that fast, too. Yeah. I really do think it was that fast. They threw him overboard. Uh, the storm stopped. They probably were looking overboard, you know, where, where did he go? You know, the storm stopped. We can bring him back on boat. You know, we, can, we can throw the, throw the rings on him and drag him back in. Now the storm stopped. <laughs> and he's gone. You know, he is totally gone. The storm ceased. It's raging. Just because they threw Jonah overboard. And the men, in verse 16, feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices unto the Lord and made vows. All of a sudden they go, we have just experienced a miracle. It is an amazing thing sometimes when people recognize a miracle from God and turn to God because that miracle happens. Well, Jesus, God could never do that. Huh? Their God could never do that. They've never seen it anyway. Uh, and they have been praying to their gods and their gods didn't deliver them. They did what this prophet told them to do and the storm ended. This is a miracle, and they're going, uh, this God is something. This God is powerful. It's the same thing that happened in Egypt. The ten plagues in Egypt was God having victory over the various gods of Egypt, and none of their gods could keep him from causing those plagues. So over and over again, God has stepped up and said, I am God, and you cannot stop me from doing what I'm going to do. Here they see it. Now, in their case, they probably just added him to their pantheon because they don't know enough about him. They're just saying, this God's got power. We're going we're gonna to worship him. And I'm not sure what they sacrificed. <laughs> uh, they've been casting everything overboard, so they, they, I don't know what they were sacrificing to him. Probably some of their stuff. Now, the stuff's been all thrown. All the, all the stuff's been thrown unless they kept some of the animals for, you know, for eating when they finally got to, through the storm. I don't know. But they offered a sacrifice of something and they made promises to God. The God who was strong enough to stop this storm uh, was the one that they were honoring. And it is pretty amazing. You see it, especially when Jesus was preaching, how many times God would do a miracle and people would turn to him and worship God. Uh, God still to this day will do miracles. Now he doesn't do miracles just to prove who he is, but he does miracles to show people that he is God. And here he did. He did a great miracle. They were being bounced around the ocean and, and caught, tossed and here and here to and fro, and they threw Jonah overboard, and immediately the, the, the storm stopped. Now, I'm not sure where they went after this because they have no cargo to take any place, so they have to go now to the nearest port, get their ship fixed, which is going to cost the captain money. They, he's lost all of his money from the cargo he had to throw overboard. So this poor captain may not ever have gone back out again because he's going to have to fix his boat and get another cargo and, and all kinds of things that are going to be involved on this. Uh, but it stopped and they make vows to God. It doesn't tell us what their vows were. It doesn't tell us what their promises were, but they offered a sacrifice and they started worshiping God. And then we end this chapter with verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God had prepared a fish big enough to swallow a man. 
That's a pretty good sized fish. Uh, we don't know how big Jonah was, but let's say he was even a short guy. He was, he was five, six, you know, uh, 100 pounds or so. That's still a pretty big fish <laughs> to, to swallow somebody that size. Yeah, well, Jesus, this is what Jesus says, that he was going to be in the tomb just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the tomb, uh, in the belly of the fish. Um, and notice that most people say whale when they quote this, but the Bible tells us it was a fish. Uh, most whales do not swallow things bigger than plankton. So it wouldn't have been a whale. Fish is the well, God prepared this fish. Uh, it may have been something like a leviathan, a huge dinosaur, uh, dragon-type uh, water, water creature that swallowed him. We don't know. There was something in the water that was big enough to swallow a man, and it's a specially prepared fish that God put in its place. He put the fish right where he needed to be to catch Jonah when he was cast into the water and swallow him. But isn't a fish a whale? No, whales are mammals. Whales are not fish. <laughs> I'm not going to rule out that it wasn't, wasn't whale, but, but in biological terms, whales eat plankton. They don't eat anything big. They, eat, they just open their mouth, swim through the plankton, get lots and lots of it in it, and, and, and feed themselves that way. I'm just saying it says fish. <laughs> Uh, so God created something yeah, that, was. that was big enough to swallow a man. Now, this is the part that drives most critics crazy. How can a man be swallowed by a fish or a whale or anything and still live? Uh, there are stories of people having been swallowed by, you know, whales or sharks or something and, and living, uh, but none of them have been verified that I could find the stories of. Uh, there's been legends and stuff where that's happened. But God says it happened, so I'm going to believe that it happened. Jesus well, I, believed that it happened. Well, I, so, well, if God said it happened, then he did something for it to happen. He might have created a very special fish. It, it, was, a, it was a fish that ate Jonah's. <laughs> uh, and there was only one Jonah in the water, so it was there to eat the only thing that it was, it was designed to eat. Yeah, he just swallowed him. And so this was a, and it says, the Lord prepared or ordained or, or set aside a fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, and Jonah is going to be in the belly of that fish for three, three days and three nights, which is the picture of Jesus' death, death on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, but this is all God at work. God sent the storm. God sent the fish. God did everything involved on this. And he's making Jonah do what he wants him to do. Does God make us do what he wants us to do? Not all the time. But, you know, I think God makes us do things more than we realize because God is a master at knowing how to guide our paths. As a manager, there were many times when I would get people to make decisions I wanted them to make, and they thought they made the decision. Because I kind of just set things up and made, made little comments here, little comments there. And the next thing they know, they're doing what I wanted them to do, thinking it was their idea. And you know what? I didn't care if they thought it was their idea. 
God would be able to do that because he knows exactly what to do to make me bend my will. Proverbs says that God holds the king's desires and turns it where he wants. You know, God is sovereign. He controls what's going on in this world. And this is one of the things that I look at. There are so many people that believe that, and I used to believe this, that God makes his decisions based on what he knows we're going to do. And some of those will be what he does. But you know, God is still in charge. If he wants me to do something, he's going to make sure I do it, just as he did Jonah. Now, Jonah was quite an extensive case. <laughs> uh, to, have, to have one of the first submarines and being be there for three days and three nights and being taken where he, God wanted him is a pretty big deal. God doesn't usually work that hard. He did with Saul. Saul's writing to, out to Damascus to destroy the Christians. God strikes him blind and off his horse and says, okay, you're going to do what I want you to do. Now, I've always said, Saul could have said, no way, I'm not following you, God. Nobody in their right mind, when they've been struck blind and, <laughs> and, and had God literally talk to them, is going to say, uh, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. You know, nobody in their right mind would disobey. Jonah is going to be in his right mind when he finally repents and he's going to obey God. Even though he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, he's going to go to Nineveh and be obedient to God uh, and do what God has said to do. And again, he, if he hadn't repented, God would have just left him in the belly of the fish and he would have been, he would have been digested. <laughs> uh, but he repents and God rescues him. And this is going to be a big deal. And the next chapter we're going to look about is prayer and his repentance before God. And we're also going to see how he wasn't totally dissolved up and, and, and hurt. Because it, it, there's a lot of little points in his prayer that guide us into a lot of what happens to him. But the whole idea that he wanted to leave the presence of God, when he knows that you can't leave the presence of an omnipresent God. You know, and... But how many times do we try to leave the presence of an omnipresent God uh, thinking that we can get away from God? Now, it's, it's bad enough when the world does it because they don't know him. But when we as his children try to get away from his presence, it's really sad because we should know better. Jonah should have known better. His testimony was that it's the God of heavens and the, and the, the God that created the sea and the, and the lands. He goes, he knew better. He knew better, but he was in disobedience because of what he wanted. He wanted a certain result, and he was willing to be disobedient, even to his own hurt, to see Nineveh destroyed. And this is quite a, quite a problem. And, you know, sometimes people get that same way. God, I am not going to talk to that person. I don't like them. I want you to judge them. Don't, don't ask me to give them the gospel. I don't want them to go to heaven. I want you to get rid of them. And we may not be quite that bold with them, but we are with our, our actions speak just that, th those words, just as I don't think Jonah would have ever told God, you know, God, I want you to destroy him. That's why I'm going the other direction. But really, that's what he's saying. God, I'm just looking forward to you destroying them. I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to go this other direction. Do whatever you want with me. As long as you destroy them, I don't care what you do to me. And that's basically what he's saying. And we need to be careful because sometimes we get caught up in that same type of thought process. God, there is no way I'm talking to that person because I don't even want to see them in heaven. 
Uh, and what a, what a harsh thing. You know, that somehow thinking that we deserve heaven and they don't deserve heaven uh, is really a sad, sad thing to even contemplate. And yet we tend to do that a lot. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to not be Jonah's. Help us to learn to love our enemies and to follow you in all that you ask us and obey your directions in, in quick actions. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.